This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our reading today is taken from the book of Joel, chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army, his forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful, who can endure it? And afterward, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. God of the prophets, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak your word to us, that we may heed your call to repentance and hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So my neighbor, Eldar, is slowly driving me insane. We live on a, a street where a lot of tourists go by on their way to Svetotsko Valley, and Eldar has a little stand in front of his house, and he sells this beautiful pottery. And to help promote his business, he has a little xylophone. And I can hear him playing throughout the day. I can hear the notes drifting in through my open window. This little tune he plays, it's very simple. He just goes up the scale and down it. It's not much more complicated than that. But as he approaches the end of the song, he slows down, and what's driving me insane is... He never hits the final note. So I'm developing this little twitch because I'm missing on this closure and resolution that I feel like I need. And I'm lying in bed on a Saturday morning. I can feel it coming and I'm wide awake and feeling all tensed and angry because of my neighbor. And what I really want to do is hang the cost, use USA to Georgia to order a massive Japanese gong and then wait there next door beside the fence and then hit that note and satisfy everyone in our neighborhood. Because... You know, in Western tonal music, we require resolution, don't we? There's this building tension, there's this dissonance, and we're waiting for the final note to come when the tension is resolved and the dissonance becomes consonance, and it gives us a sense of reassurance, a sense of well-being that, ah, the world is an ordered world, and everything has fallen back into its place, and this song is complete. We don't really live in an ordered world, do we? We're all actually living with our, our twitching eyes because we live in a world of dissonance and tension where things aren't the way that they should be. And we live in a world that's full of misery on, you know, a massive scale of whole populations and also on 
a very private scale. Just across the border from us, there are people fleeing their homes, fearful of ethnic cleansing. There are millions and millions of people around the world living in fear or anxiety or in hunger. There are authoritarian governments on the rise oppressing their people. And if we have a sense of justice, if we have a strong sense of justice, which we should if we love God and have been shaped by him, we feel like this is wrong. This is not the way the world should be. And really, Christianity's answer to the problem of evil is not to explain how this is all compatible and can be reconciled with the existence of a good and powerful God, because we can't. We can't reconcile this world with the good and powerful God. And we can't reconcile the private miseries of our own little lives with a good and powerful God. Our own stories, our own broken dreams, our own traumas, our own little miseries. But the song isn't over yet. The story isn't complete. And we're waiting here, hanging here, leaning forward, waiting for the last bar or two of music to be played that somehow, we don't know how, we can't even imagine how, but somehow it's going to resolve all of that tension and put the world right again. And that last note that we're waiting for will happen at what the prophet Joel calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, this phrase that comes up again and again in this short book. This is message number 30 out of 40 messages on Christ and the Old Testament. One message on each of these Old Testament books. And here we are in the Minor Prophets coming across this little book of Joel, a prophet we actually know very little about. We're told in verse 1 that Joel was the son of Pethuel. I don't know if that's illuminating at all to anyone. It isn't to me. What we do know is that the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't know much about him, but we do know that God spoke to him and God was speaking through this man, and he's still addressing the people of God today. There are no clues in this book as to when this prophecy was written, but what is interesting is that Joel quotes, or he alludes to, other Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah and Zephaniah and Nahum, which means that Joel must have been one of the later prophets. And he's been meditating on these prophecies that have come before him reading the scrolls of people to whom God has spoken in the centuries previous. And Joel has been stirred by the Holy Spirit to draw them all together and express this one key message that comes up again and again in these prophetic scrolls. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And Joel is a short book. It's only three chapters. And in the first chapter, Joel refers to an imminent locust plague that's going to come and destroy the whole agricultural economy of Israel. And swarms of locusts were one of the worst calamities to hit in ancient societies, and they actually still are today. They're threatening food security everywhere from the Horn of Africa to northern Afghanistan, where just this year, there was a massive swarm of locusts that destroyed up to 25% of the wheat harvest in that country, as if they weren't suffering enough. I read a very interesting article on NPR.org about Locusts. Locusts are actually quite an intriguing little insect. They're part of the grasshopper family, and ordinarily they just look like any other kind of grasshopper, but they have a very special capacity. Most of the time, locusts live in the grasshopper phase. They live solitary lives, they're green, and they're very unremarkable. And the timing of this varies, the article reads, and the shifts are pretty irregular, but for years, locusts can live like this, alone, biding their time. Not a phrase you like to read in an article about an insect. 
alone, biding their time. But when the environmental conditions are right, when there's enough rainfall, they can sense, I guess, the moisture in the, in the atmosphere, and then something dramatic happens. They start to multiply rapidly. They increase in numbers at an exponential rate, and as they do, they can sense the other locusts around them. This is what biologists call the gregarious phase of the locust. And the creatures undergo this remarkable transformation. They change their physiology, their brain changes, their color changes, their body size changes, and instead of repelling each other like they normally do, they begin to attract each other. And if these conditions persist in the environment, they begin to gather, and they start to march together in coordinated forces across the landscape. And when locusts swarm like this, they devour everything. They just ravage agriculture and eat everything in sight. And the swarms of locusts are these gargantuan clouds, masses of tens of billions of flying bugs, which can range anywhere from a square third of a mile to 100 square miles or more, with 40 to 80 million locusts packed in half a square mile. And they bulldoze pasture lands in dark clouds the size of football fields and in small cities. And in northern Kenya recently, one swarm was reported to be 25 miles long by 37 miles long, which would blanket the city of Paris 24 times over. And these creatures, they're powerful long-distance flyers. They can fly up to 100 kilometers in a 24-hour period. They can move across the country in a matter of days. And they ride the winds, crisscrossing swaths of land until they can find something to munch on. They're ravenous eaters. An adult desert locust only weighs a couple of grams, but they can consume their own weight daily, and they multiply 20-fold in the course of, of eight weeks, and they're not picky at all. And a swarm of locusts, just one square kilometer, a third of a square mile, can consume as much food as would be eaten by 35,000 people. And it's one of these dark, ominous clouds of ravenous insects, Joel warns, prompted by the Spirit of God, this is just over the horizon, and it's about to devastate Israel's farmland. All these people who are living a pretty marginal existence anyways are about to have their whole country destroyed. Of course, this is not the first time we encounter a plague of locusts in the Bible. It's one of the ten plagues that God visits on the land of Egypt to release the people of Israel from slavery. But now something disturbing is happening. The plagues that God had sent against the enemies of Israel... God is now directing against his own people in judgment, in discipline, in punishment. And Joel has been sent by God to warn the people. He says, they're like a bunch of drunkards. They're slumped, they're passed out, and they're completely unaware of the calamity approaching. And the word of the Lord that God gave Joel is like a bucket of ice-cold water that is being dashed in their faces to sober them, to call them to their senses so they can avoid this disaster that's happening. And in the wake of the invading hordes of insects, the people, Joel predicts, are going to cry out that the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine dried up, the olive oil fails. And Joel urges that the priests lament and they cry out and they get the nation to pray and seek mercy from God, that they would declare a holy fast, that they would call a holy assembly, that they'd gather the elders together all of them who live in the land, to the house of the Lord, to the temple, to cry out and plead with God to have mercy. That's what spiritual leaders do. That's what good spiritual leaders should do. Speak the honest, brutal truth to people and summon them to repentance to God. To get people to face the facts 
even if those are painful facts, even if they're uncomfortable facts, even if they're facts that confront and judge us. And in chapter 2, which Sonia read a selection of verses for us, God reveals to Joel that actually an even worse disaster is coming. That's going to make those locusts look like nothing. There's a vast, cruel army that is going to sweep down from the north. Whether it's the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians, we're not told, but these warriors are going to march, faces fixed forward, marching without jostling each other, marching straight ahead, relentlessly plunging through the frail defenses that Israel tries to put up. They're going to swarm over the walls into people's houses, destroying and pillaging and devastating as they go. And Joel describes this event as the day of the Lord, a day of cosmic convulsion. When the earth shakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. And this is a description of a theophany, when God himself appears. Like when God showed up on the top of Mount Sinai to the 12 tribes gathered below in thunder and lightning and darkness. It's the sign of a terrifying manifestation of a holy God on earth. Except that unlike on Mount Sinai, when the mountain was fenced so the people would not be destroyed, this time God is unleashing himself in holy wrath on his sinful people. The day of the Lord. It's this event when God tears the heavens open and he breaks into human history to reestablish his sovereignty, to assert, I alone am the king. I rule over the nations. The day of the Lord is an apocalyptic revelation of the wrath of God. Yes, God is slow to anger, but he is also unrelentingly opposed to human wickedness. And in fact, if God did nothing, if God didn't intervene, if God just sat back and refused to confront and judge and destroy evil, then God would not actually be good. We can no longer worship God as a good God. In fact, God's wrath is not God lashing out in a fit of temper. God's wrath is actually an expression of his goodness. Just as good people do feel angry, deeply angry when they see sin and evil and suffering in the world. We're experiencing something of God's goodness as it comes face to face with evil in this world. And God's confrontation with evil is violent. These are violent descriptions. This is not good and evil sitting in a comfortable boardroom with coffee and tea in front of them having a negotiation. Goodness can never reconcile with evil. It can tolerate it for a time, but goodness cannot reconcile with evil. It must destroy it. And again and again in history, there are these days of the Lord when God manifests himself in a special way. At the flood, with the exodus, the exile, the fall of Jerusalem, all these repeated times when God does show up and at least in a partial way, he judges sin among the nations or in Israel. But there's also the day of the Lord. One final day of the Lord at the end of history, when evil is completely wiped out, never to rise again, when justice is perfectly manifested in the world. And that will be a cataclysmic day. The day of the Lord is great. It's dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel asks. 
And really, if we're looking at this day with complacency, if we're sitting here rubbing our hands, at least mentally, and thinking, thank God, God will destroy all those bad people in the world, and we get to sit back and watch the world burn, how satisfying would that be? We're actually seriously deluded because judgment always begins with the household of God. And when scripture reminds us of the day of the Lord and the dreadful wrath of God that's going to be unleashed against wickedness, it's meant, first of all, to confront us. And if we think it's just about other people that we don't like or that make us feel uncomfortable, we're very, very deceived. God speaks this warning of judgment through Joel, but immediately after, there's an appeal. And God says, even now, return to me with all your heart, declares the Lord, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Because the point of Joel's vision is not to help us predict the future. It's to scare us into changing our lives, to frighten us, if that's what we need, to soberly, honestly evaluate who we are before the eyes of God. Because God doesn't want our death. He doesn't delight in bloodshed and destruction. God's holding out his hands to us because he wants us to come to him and to find life. Come to me, repent, return to your God. But rend your hearts, not your garments. God is not interested in a merely outward, showy, religious way of expressing the liturgy of repentance with sackcloth and ashes and tearing our clothing. God's not interested in that kind of religious fakery. What God's looking for is the broken and contrite heart. That's who he wants to draw near to. And he promises that those who judge themselves do not have to fear the judgment of God. Those of us who are willing to do what none of us really want to do, to open up our hearts and look inside at what is dark and shameful, to compare who we are in our innermost self with the love and the holiness and the justice of God, if we're willing to do that and put away the self-deception that we all cling to and offer that heart in repentance to God and cry out to him to forgive us and to change us, then God will relent. And then the day of the Lord will not be a day of calamity, but a day of salvation. And the reason God will relent, he tells us in Joel, is because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and full of love, and he relents from sending calamity. The day of the Lord will come. We can't avoid it. It is coming. It's on the calendar. The day, we don't know when, but it is coming, just over the horizon. And for those who mend their ways, God promises that this day of judgment will be a day of mercy and a day of blessing. Because you know that the day of the Lord, it has its dark side. And we feel that as we hear these words of Joel. It is dark and fearful and terrible and frightening. But it also has a light side because this God who is always ready to take pity on his people, whose heart is moved with compassion at the first step that we take towards him, he tells his people through Joel, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten. The days of judgment and destruction I will make up. I will defeat the invading armies. I will protect you from your enemies. I'm going to send abundant rain. I'm going to make the pastures green. I'm going to make the trees heavy with fruit. I'm going to make your vats full of wine and oil. And there will be so much blessing on your head, you will not be able to bear it. The earth itself, the suffering, groaning creation is going to be renewed. And God promises that I'm going to be wonderfully present among my people. 
And in those days, Joel prophesies, at the end of history, God's own spirit will come and fill his people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. I'm going to pour out my spirit, God promises, and all my servants, men and women, people of all nations. Words, of course, that the Apostle Peter famously quotes and preaches from and expounds on the day of Pentecost. After Christ has ascended to heaven, he sends his spirit on his waiting people and they begin to pray and prophesy and speak in other languages and other tongues. And we love that story, right? It's a story of excitement, a story of consolation, and we long for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. But I think what we miss in that story that I'm realizing now reading Acts through this book of Joel is that Joel and also Peter, they explicitly tie the gift of the Holy Spirit with the judgment of God, with this crisis that's happening at the end of history. The Pentecostal gift of the Spirit is part of the day of the Lord, the events leading up to the day of the Lord. Joel says about the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood, this heavy manifestation of the wrath and the judgment of God, along with Joel's promise, God's promise through Joel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's through Peter preaching from Joel, this message of judgment and repentance from Joel, that prompts 3,000 people who are present to cry out, pierce to the heart, what must we do to be saved? And they believe on the Lord Jesus, they repent, and they're baptized into his name that very day. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not just an event of comfort and consolation. It's an event of crisis. It's an event of judgment. It's a call to repentance. And if we're here raising our hands, singing, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I want the excitement. I want the power. I want the manifestations. But we're not realizing that the presence of the Holy Spirit, when he genuinely comes, and when a counterfeit isn't just manifested by the flesh, when the Holy Spirit really comes, he always brings the tears of repentance with him. He always challenges and transforms our lives. It's as John the Baptist foretold when Jesus came. The baptizer said, after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you, not with water like me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Holy Spirit is the most powerful sign of God's coming judgment. He brings a crisis into our lives because the Spirit is sent by Jesus to convict us of sin, to realize that in the light of God's holiness, the wrath of God rests on me. I am under divine judgment. And prompted and moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit, we don't just rend our garments, but our hearts. And the Spirit draws us powerfully to repent and to put our faith in Christ and to begin a new life in him. Pentecost is an eschatological event which is a fancy way of saying that Pentecost begins the last days. It gets the timeline moving to the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and in our own lives, he's bringing the coming kingdom right here, right now into our own lives. And we experience partially, but truly, when the Spirit comes, we experience the life of the world to come here and now in our own lives. The healing 
and the holiness of the new creation, we begin to experience these green shoots in our own lives. And the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit by whom the Father raised Christ from the dead, begins to work in our lives, delivering us from this present evil age and giving us the hope, the longing, the desire, and the patience to await the kingdom of God. You know, if we were to write a biblical timeline, beginning from creation and moving toward the end, the last event on that calendar before the return of Christ and the final judgment would be the day of Pentecost. It's a long way between the stations, but it's the last station before the end. And you know, when I go on the metro, I was on the metro last night going to Didube, where I get on the Mashruka to make my way home. Didube is my last station. And when I'm sitting there, perhaps with my son or my daughter, and it's very crowded and noisy, and I can see outside that we've hit the station before, Gotsuridze Station, and I give my son a significant nod, or I mention we're getting off at the next station. And if the metro's full, we get up and we start to inch our way toward the door so that we can actually get off. Pentecost is the penultimate station. It's the last station before the terminus. And the arrival of the Spirit should stir us awake as we slouch in our seats and get us ready for the end of history. It's the terminus of history in this world, but it's the beginning of something new, the renewal of creation. And in his last chapter, Joel prophesies that in that day, the day of the Lord, after all this wrath and judgment and destruction, and the crisis of the wrath of God, the mountains are going to drip wine. The hills will flow with milk, and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. And then the last sentence in the book, the Lord dwells in Zion. God will be present in love and holiness among his people. The last note will have been sounded on the great gong of God's judgment, which means salvation for those of us who are in Christ. And a new story will begin. A new song will be sung. And you know, for those of us in Christ, although the day of the Lord is a dark day, it's a dreadful day, it's a fearful day, if we're in Christ, that should not be a day of terror. It's a day of hope. And we cry out and we long, even so, come Lord Jesus, come and end the groaning of creation, come and end the groaning of our lives, wipe all tears away, put all things to right, and bring down your new creation. It's a day of hope. But over and over again in Scripture, when the day of the Lord is described, when we're warned of the last judgment, it's always spoken, we're always reminded of it, to urge us to moral seriousness. You know, as I flip through my New Testament and look at the many, many times that the last days are spoken of, or the return of Christ, or the final judgment, always you'll find very close by is some kind of urging for us to repent and change our lives and to seek holiness. Prophecy in Scripture is never given just to feed our curiosity. It's always given to prompt us to change and amend our ways. And if we're listening to this with complacency, if we're slouched at ease, not disturbed at all by God's warning, then we are deceived. I think there is an illusion among a lot of evangelical Christians that somehow the last judgment doesn't apply to us. You know when you're at the airport and you have to go through security and take off your shoes and your bags and put them all through the scanner, and then you see the flight crew coming by in their nice uniforms. They always have those little suit, tiny little suitcases on rollers, and they show their badge, and they get waved through a special gate. And I think a lot of Christians are under the illusion that when we come to the day of judgment, 
when our works will be exposed and our lives examined by the all-seeing holy eye of God, that somehow as Christians, we get to skip that line. Like we get to walk up to security and say, well, actually I have this badge covered by the righteousness of Christ, as though I can just say, Lord, Lord, and whisper the code, and God will say, oh, you will not be judged by works. You just get to scoot on right through here. Your life doesn't matter. Scripture is very clear that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that the final judgment applies to Christians as well as non-Christians. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, but only those who what? Who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. When the sheep and the goats are divided, it's not going to be on the basis of who claimed to believe in Jesus or not. It's going to be on the basis of this. Who lived lives of holiness and love? Who gave a cup of cold water to the thirsty? Who fed the hungry? Who visited those in prison? Who manifested the life of the Spirit in their own lives? Who demonstrated that their faith in Jesus wasn't just words, but actually meant something? Who showed that the grace of God is not just a concept floating out there. The grace of God pervades our hearts and our lives and actually changes us. Those who have this hope, Scripture says, they purify themselves. And if we've lived lives of holiness and love, if we've responded to the grace of God, if we've actually picked up our cross and followed Jesus, then that day should hold no terrors for us. Because that day is not going to surprise us like a thief in the night. Not because we know the secret schedule, but because the master will find us doing what we should be doing, doing his work. And then he will invite us into his eternal dwellings. And the day of the Lord will not be a day of destruction for us, but a day of salvation. When we're freed from sin, we're freed from oppression, we're freed from evil, we're freed from Satan, we're freed from death to enter into God's new creation. So shall we bow our heads and pray now that when that day comes, that all of us will be able to stand with clear consciences, full of hope before God, welcoming his holy presence in this world. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that this word would query and question and even judge our lives now while there is still space for repentance so that that will not be a day of disaster for us. Give us the courage, O Lord, by your spirit to inspect our hearts, to compare who we really are, who we really are with who you call us to be and help us to respond in repentance, to cry out for mercy to reach out our hands to you, the one who's already reaching out for us, O Lord. Fill us with the spirit of your son. May your grace fill every corner of our lives. May it transform us so that we can look forward with hope to the day that is coming, to cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. We are your church, we're your bride, purifying yourselves, waiting, ready, longing for you. In his great name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.